Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for this opportunity to be here to preach your word. God, I pray that you'd be with us, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that as we uh, look to your word, God, that we would not only be hearers, but also doers, that we would be changed by it, that we would grow by it. And God, I pray for the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning as well. I pray that they too would worship you in spirit and truth, that your gospel would be proclaimed, God, and that you would stir people's hearts to live for you, for your glory. And God, I pray especially for that for us now here at Harmony Bible Church. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at Titus 1, verses 5-9 through 9 today and consider this topic of church elders, I'm going to implore you not to zone out. right? Not to think, well, this is the perfect time to catch up on some sleep or whatever because I know the Patriots are playing tonight and it's a late night game and I need to get some sleep. But instead, to focus on what we're talking about today. Because this role of church elders and the qualification for church elders is something that is important to all of us as a local church body, but it also has application for all of us individually as the people of God. You see, the qualifications for elders and deacons, for that matter, are not characteristics of super-Christians. In fact, D.A. Carson said the most remarkable thing about these list of qualifications is that they're not remarkable. They're not qualifications for super-Christians, but instead characteristics of mature-Christians. The Scripture says when you're looking for leaders in the church, find those who are mature. And then those who are mature are the ones who are to serve as leaders. And we see those qualifications spelled out in this text. So as believers, maturity is something that we should all be striving for. So this applies to all of us. So without further delay, let's look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both, both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. As we address this issue of church elders, it's important to get a proper view of who these elders are. Who is Scripture talking about when it talks about elders within the church? Therefore, I want you to look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2 with me. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter writes this, and if you remember, a few months ago, we actually studied this passage when we worked our way through First Peter, or a number of months ago, I guess it was now, probably a couple of years ago at this point. But First Peter 5, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders, 
This is uh, the word presbuteros. It speaks to maturity, those who are mature. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd. This is the verb form of the word pastor. It's poimen, so shepherd, pastor, provide care for. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So from that text, I've said this before and I'll say it again, the terms elder, pastor, or shepherd, and bishop, or overseer, are used all through the New Testament to refer to the same New Testament church office. Not the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's the same office where these words are used, even in this passage, to refer to the same office. He says, elders shepherd and exercise oversight. Those who are mature, be a pastor and bishop. That's where we get our words, uh, you recognize some of these words, the word for oversight is episcopeo, right? It's where we get the word episcopalian and presbuteros for elders, where we get presbyterian. So this idea of elder, pastor, and bishop being one and the same. In fact, John Piper sums it up well when he says, the New Testament only refers to the office of pastor one time, and that's Ephesians 4. It's a functional description of the role of elder, stressing the care and feeding of God's church, of the church as God's flock. Just as bishop and overseer is a functional description of the role of elder, stressing the governing or oversight of the church. So he says, pastor is a functional description focusing on the care and feeding, and bishop and overseer is a functional description focusing on the governing of oversight. And he goes on and says, We may conclude, therefore, that pastor and elder and bishop slash overseer refer in the New Testament to the same office. And also, before we move on to talk about the specific work of church elders, I want you to briefly notice three things from Titus 1, verse 5, the first verse of our text this morning. Not only do we know that uh, pastors, elders, and bishops are the one and the same, but also from this verse, Titus 1, verse 5, which says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. We learn this. He tells Titus to appoint elders in every city. This means that the churches, without exception, were to have elders. Churches must have elders. That There's a natural progression that when a church is formed, an elder must be appointed or determined. Or a pastor, if you prefer to call them that. Number two, the term for elders is plural. That throughout Scripture, when speaking of the elders in a local church, it's always the elders in a local It's plural, and there should be a plurality of elders in a local congregation. Now, I realize there are some instances when there is not a plurality of elders. And even in this church, I am a pastor. I serve as the elder at Harmony Bible Church, and there's no plurality of elders. And frankly, I pray, and I hope that you pray, that there would be more elders long term. That any church would want more shepherds, more pastors, more people exercising oversight. We have We have elders, or an elder, and then deacons who help in that work. And I believe, that's another topic, but I believe those men are gifted and and actually 
could serve in that role as elder, and we could have more men come along as deacons. But the point is that while Scripture doesn't say there must be a plurality anywhere, because certainly you don't want to have five just to say you have five if they're unqualified, Scripture does speak to the fact that there's normally a plurality. Wouldn't it be great if we had ten pastors of Harmony Bible Church? Be fabulous. So more is a good thing. There's, a, there's an expected plurality. And number three, the elders were to be appointed. This clearly indicates that he is not referring to just any and every individual who is older or who is aged within the congregation, but instead he's speaking of somebody with a specific office. There's a need for there to be recognized leaders serving in this particular role. So every church has them. There should be a plurality, and there is a recognized position in office. So having understood who the elder is, let's dig into the first point in our sermon outline. The first point in our sermon outline is, number one, his charge. Number one, his charge. This refers to the elder. Look at verse 5 again with me. Titus 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And considering the charge or the task the elders have been given, the work they've been asked to do, it's important for us to see that from this verse, Paul reminds Titus that he left him behind for a very specific purpose. The purpose of setting in order that which remained. The phrase set in order is one Greek word, and it's epidiortho, and it comes from the the root word uh, orthos, which means to make straight. It's where we get our English words orthodontist, and orthopedic, and orthodox. So we have this idea of straight teeth, right, orthodontist, and straight bones, orthopedic, or straight, orthodox, straight, or right teaching. You see, Paul knew that the foundation of the gospel had been laid in Crete, but also that the ongoing work of setting things in order, staying on the straight path, needed to take place. Morgan just recently had her braces removed, and uh, I know the twins recently had braces put on. Morgan just recently had hers removed, praise God, and some $5,000 later. But she's had her braces removed, and now in theory, her teeth are going to remain straight. The church, however, the setting things right, the making things straight, isn't a one-time thing. Instead, it's a continual thing. It's an ongoing effort. Why? Because it's not, it's easy for individuals, not just individuals, but entire churches of whom individuals are made up. It's easy for churches and individuals to get off track, to get caught up in either false teaching or unbiblical Behavior, which typically, by the way, go hand in hand. When teaching is off, behavior is off. When behavior is off, teaching is off. So it's clear from the text that one of the primary ways by which Titus was to set things in order was to appoint elders. The elders serve as guardrails in a sense. This was not unique to Crete, but was Paul's practice wherever people responded to the Gospel and wherever churches were formed. You read Acts 14, 
verses 21 through 24, and it says this, After they, this is Paul and Barnabas, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Stay strong. Stay on on task. Stay focused. Stay following Jesus, because many tribulations will come. And then what did they do? Verse 23, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then in verse 24, they passed through Sidia and came to Pamphylia. Then they moved on. They said, you need to grow, you need to remain strong, you need to stay on course, therefore we need elders. And they appointed elders, and then, and only then, they moved on. You see, Paul's desire was to see the churches in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, as well as those in the cities of Crete, to grow in the Gospel, to remain steadfast in their devotion to the Lord. And just as Paul wanted Titus to appoint elders to keep the church heading in the right direction, so also church elders are needed today. And they're needed for the very same reason. By the way, this is not to say that elders are the ones who ultimately build or maintain or even protect the church. That's the work of God. It's something that He, God Himself, has promised He will do. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Elders, however, are God's gracious gift to the church and the means through which He intends to accomplish those very things. So the charge to elders is to set things in order. He tells Titus, set things in order by appointing elders who will in turn set things in order. And elders set things in order by doing the following. Again, going back to 1 Peter 5, which we read a few minutes ago. 1 Peter 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So he says elders, they do this, they set things in order by shepherding, by exercising oversight, and by being examples. And then in 1 Timothy 5.17, we see another example. It says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So we have this idea of ruling and preaching and teaching being the work of the elders. And then Acts 20, verses 28-31. through 31, We actually read this in, in uh, a prayer meeting and Bible study on Wednesday night. Paul said to the elders in Ephesus, he said, Be on guard! For yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, saying, guard against false teachers. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So in Acts, we have this idea of being on guard, shepherding, and being on the alert. 
And then one more in James 5. You see the work of the elder. James 5.14 Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Last but not least, the call of the elder is one of prayer. He is to pray for the church. So the elder is called to this role, the role of being an example of ruling and shepherding, of teaching and preaching, of guarding against false doctrine and praying for the sick. The elder is charged with with keeping the church Not just the organization, by the way, but the people, the people who are the church, heading in the right direction. You know, i got to tell you, that is, if there's anything that's going to keep me up at night, that's the thing that keeps me up at night. It's not, you know, what song should we sing on Sunday? Or, uh, you know, how should we arrange the service? Or what are we going to do without Lucy here this week to play the piano or those things. Those things are important and those things we, we, we uh, guide and direct and we help uh, figure out how to get through those things. But really, to me, it's all about how do I make sure that all the people are heading in the right direction? And that starts first and foremost with me and making sure that I'm heading in the right direction, that I'm setting things in order in my own life. That's why Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. That ultimately, I believe wholeheartedly that Hebrews 13 says that when I stand before God, God, I'll have to give an account to God for each of you as well as me. That's why Scripture says not many should teach. Not many should be teachers because of this. And I read through this text in Titus and I think, woe is me. I I can't live up to this. And I assure you, I can't. It's only by God's grace that any of this can even be applied at all in any capacity to my life. So the elder is given this big charge The first point in our sermon outline concerning church elders, having seen that, his charge, namely to provide overwatch and care for the church. We now move on to the second point in our sermon outline. Point number two is his conduct. Look at verse six with me. Here we begin to see the specific qualifications for those who serve as elders within the church. This verse addresses what an elder's behavior in the home, both as a husband and a father, should look like. Paul says, namely... Verse 6, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. The words that jump off the page to me here are above reproach. Paul is saying that elders should be above reproach in their conduct. The NIV and the King James Version translate the single Greek word as blameless. And while it doesn't carry the connotation of being absolutely perfect, for nobody would qualify to be an elder except for Jesus himself, if that was the case. The idea is of someone who cannot be legitimately charged with wrongdoing and the way he he conducts himself as a leader in his home. And by the way, I say legitimately charged because if you followed Jesus for any length of time and if you stepped out in ministry and you've served, you will find that you will be charged with all kinds of things. I remember one time an accusation coming my way in ministry and me going, 
I could have given you a list of all kinds of faults. That one, I don't know where it came from. But it's when others step back and they go, nope, that's not the Jason Polly that I know. That's not the Bill Batty that I know. So there's no legitimacy to that charge. The parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and in verse 4, to this uh, section, verse 6, says this, An overseer, an elder, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Verse 4, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And the idea here is that an elder must be blameless, not perfect, but not able to be legitimately accused of wrongdoing, of doing a poor job. He must be blameless in the way he loves, cares for, shepherds, his wife, and his kids. Why? Because 1 Timothy 3.5 goes on to say, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? You see, he can't. And what the, the man of God, what the elder is charged with, is not creating the perfect product, but instead, I believe this passage deals with process, not product. For there is no pastor alive, regardless of how faithful he is, how good he is, who always produces the perfect church. There is no parent alive, regardless of how good of a parent he is, how good of a father he is, who produces the perfect child. Instead, the focus is, how is he managing? Is he managing his own household well? Is he blameless in the way he's managing? Not perfect. But can he stand up against a legitimate charge? He must be a good manager. More specifically though, the text says, he must be the husband of one wife. And literally, this refers to a one-woman man. That this man must have an ongoing record of faithfulness. His devotion must be for his wife and for his wife alone. He must be a one-woman man. And some say, well, this deals with polygamy, that he shouldn't be married to multiple wives. And some say, well, it really is talking about divorce, and he shouldn't be divorced and remarried. And I say, yes, he should be. It refers to all of that. He should love his wife. He should love his wife. And he should be literally devoted to one woman and one woman alone. He must be the husband of one wife. And he must have children who believe, Titus says. The word here is pista, means faithful in the Greek. Now, I want to just say, I do not believe that this can refer to, uh, can possibly refer to the fact that an elder's children must be saved or born again or followers of Jesus. That's a work of God, not a work of dad. Please understand that that is God at work in a child's heart, in a person's heart, not dad at work in a person's heart that makes them come to faith in Jesus. Father may be used, should be used in that process. But I don't believe that we can say that this word, which means faithful, refers to that. Because that would exclude not only all men with unbelieving children, but also all men with children who are too young to believe. That would exclude anyone who says, my children aren't of that age where they can believe themselves. Instead, this requirement goes hand in hand with the phrase that follows having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. 
The idea here is that their children must demonstrate that they have a profound respect, that they have a care to obey, to be faithful to their parents' wishes. Faithful in the home. In other words, the elder must be blameless. He must be above reproach, not able to, or able to stand up against a charge of wrongdoing in his conduct. He must be blameless in his marriage. He must be blameless in his children's conduct. By the way, just a side note, this isn't in my notes, but I think Jesus is a perfect example of this. Jesus is blameless with his bride. That doesn't mean that his bride is always faithful. Right? We are His bride. And we do all kinds of things to destroy our marriage with Christ. But He is faithful. He is without blame. That we cannot accuse Jesus of doing wrong or doing bad because we, as His bride, have violated that marriage covenant. The same is true with us as children. That Jesus is blameless. Regardless of His children's conduct. That the conduct should be, should follow in line in general terms with a, with a parent who guides the children in the way they should go. But when they don't, when we don't follow Jesus, we can't, certainly can't say, Jesus, it's because of you that I sinned against you. Jesus is blameless. We are the ones who are to blame when we don't follow Jesus. And the same is true, I believe, for an elder that he must keep his kids under control while those kids are of the age where they can be controlled. And then they come to a place where they make decisions on their own. And at that point in time, the elder can no longer, no longer has that sort of control over his children. So having seen the elder's charge, that he's called to set things in order, to guide and direct the church in obedience to Christ and His Word, his conduct, that he's to be blameless, above reproach in his marriage and in his family, we now look to the third point in our sermon outline. The third point is, number three, his character. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me, his character. Paul writes, For the overseer must be above reproach. Again, same word. Not only in his family, but this time, he must be above reproach as God's steward. He says, and here's what that looks like. Not self-willed. He can't be arrogant and stubborn. Not quick-tempered. Not given to anger or fits of rage. Not addicted to wine. Not just someone who doesn't get drunk, but somebody who's, who's not addicted to the, the substance. Because there are plenty of people who are addicted who may never get drunk. When their lives are ordered around alcohol, I assure you, they are addicted. Not pugnacious. Literally means a striker, not somebody who wants to fight all the time. Not fond of sordid gain. And that means uh, uh, not shamefully greedy. But instead, somebody is, who is hospitable, somebody who opens their home to strangers, loving what is good, sensible, just, that's righteous or upright, devout means holy or set apart, and self controlled. So Paul says that an overseer, the episkopos, the elder, the one who exercises oversight, must be blameless as God's steward. The word steward refers to someone who has been given responsibility or care of something. I want to tell you, I was not always these things. Prior to being a follower of Jesus Christ, I was far from these things. If you cut me off, I'd follow you home. Because I was a striker. I wanted to fight because you cut me off. I was not self-controlled. 
I was fond of sordid gain. I was well on my way to being addicted to wine. Now I'll tell you, I was quick-tempered. But I've been made a steward. I've been entrusted with something. See, while the elders are called to be good stewards of the church to which God entrusted them, I think Paul is referring to being stewards of the gospel here. I think he's referring to being stewards of the grace of God. Stewards of God's good gifts. We see Paul use this word steward in this way in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, when he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And again in 1 Peter 4 when he writes, Each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He says believers have been stewards of the gospel. They've been given and trusted with the gospel. They've been given grace, the manifold grace of God. So when Paul says elders should not be self-willed or quick-tempered or addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled, he is saying that the elder should be these things, not because they have moral superpowers or even are naturally wonderful people, but because they are stewards of the grace that God has given them. God has given them the ability to live this way. He's given elders this ability just as He has given you that very same ability by His grace. The point is that elders should be blameless, not legitimately accused of wrongly handling the grace they've been given. Elders don't say, we should continue in sin so that grace may increase. Instead, as stewards of grace, they say, His divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Elders exhibit the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit is alive and at work in them. You see, the elder needs to be someone who is clearly a steward of the manifold grace of God and cannot be accused legitimately otherwise. The transforming power of God needs to be evident in an elder's life. So in our study of church elders so far, we've seen his charge, that he's called to set things in order to provide overwatch and care. That We've seen his conduct, that he's to be blameless above reproach in his marriage and his family. We've seen his character, that he's to be blameless as a steward of God's grace. The power of God should be evident in his life, and that's not able to be called into question. Now let's consider our fourth and final point. Number four, his concern. The elder's concern. Look at verse 9 with me. Paul goes on to say that the elder must be one who is holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The faithful word here is a clear reference to the gospel. And it's indeed what elders must not only faithfully teach, but also personally hold fast to. I love the way the New Living Translation communicates this verse. It says, he must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. So he has to have a strong belief in the gospel. He has to really, truly believe it himself. Then, he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching. Then, he will be able to teach others in a wholesome way. And, he will be able to show those who oppose it that they are wrong. That then, he'll be able to say, no, you are wrong. 
Because he cherishes the gospel. He loves the word of God. He holds fast to the word of God so he can show others the truth of the word of God. The elder must be concerned with the spiritual health of both himself and those whom he ministers to. That's why I spend so much time preparing my message. You know, I could probably just find an online service where I could download somebody else's sermon for $28.95 a week or whatever it costs, right? There there are services out there that provide this. Just download a message, print it off, maybe review it a couple of times and come up here and rattle it off to you. But I won't do that. I won't do that because God has called me personally to be strong in the faith. And in that strength, in turn, to be used of God to strengthen you. That's why I pray that you never pay me to preach. That if you start to think we pay him to preach, then you've got it wrong. My job as a pastor, job if you will, is far less about getting up here and speaking and far more about what happens throughout the week. It's much more about the time that I pray and read and study and seek the Lord than it is about the 45 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour or however long I'm up here. You see, what I say up here needs to flow out of the fact that I am personally holding fast to the Word of God. Because Paul says, it's only then, it's only then that I will be able to exhort, to encourage and write teaching, and to refute or expose that which is not in accordance with sound doctrine. The elder must be concerned with his own spiritual health and those whom he ministers to. So by way of review, we're getting close to the end here. By way of review, our study of church elders has shown us, number one, his charge that he's called to set things in order, to keep things straight, to guide and direct the church in obedience We've seen his conduct that he is called to act in a way that is blameless, that is above reproach in his marriage and in his family. We've seen his character that he must be be blameless as a steward of grace. That the power of God in his life is not able to be called into question. Not that he is perfect, but that the power of God is evident in his life. And number four, his concern. He must love the gospel and God's word. And out of that love must flow a concern for his own spiritual health and for the health of others. So here's the big question. So how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, specifically here at Harmony Bible Church? Well, number one, this applies to me as the pastor. This applies to me as the elder here at Harmony Bible Church. And much of this message I feel like I'm preaching to myself. This applies to me because I need to live in light of these truths. I need to examine what Scripture says about my charge, my conduct, my character, my concern, and I need to live in light of that as an elder. But number two, when I began this message, I said that it was not only applicable to elders, but really instead to all of us. If pastors are an example to the flock, that what naturally follows is that all Christ followers are called to live this way. So before we close, I just want to show you how all of these points are connected by considering them beginning with the last point and then working back to the first. So looking at the last point, our concern or his concern, our concern must be holding fast to the truth of the gospel. Our concern must be the Word of God and holding fast to the truth of the Gospel. If we depart from this, 
we've got a real problem. Our primary concern must be always, always coming back to the good news of Jesus Christ and to the authority of God in our lives as revealed in this book. Our concern must be for holding fast to the truth of the gospel. And as we do that, our character will reflect that we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. As we hold fast to His Word, our character will show that God's grace is at work in us. That God is being gracious. That He's growing us. That He's molding us and making us into the image of His Son. And as we do that, our conduct, when our character is right, our conduct in our personal lives will reflect that character. It will be evident in the way we deal with others. Especially those who are closest to us, like our family. And when we've got the the situation with our conduct, our family, when it's not right, we need to come back and say, is our concern right? Is our character right? And then, is our conduct right? And then when we do that, when our conduct is right, when we're living in a way that glorifies God, when we're being obedient to Christ in our relationships with others, it's then that we are living out our calling, our charge, if you will, by setting in order by staying on the path that Christ set us on, by keeping straight on that path for a closer walk with Jesus. So my challenge for us today is for our concern to be to hold fast to the truth of the Gospel, to grow in character, to grow in the manifold grace of God, for our conduct to reflect that character, and for us to live out our charge, our calling, and growing in Jesus, and staying on that straight and narrow path that He has called us to as we await the day that He returns and He carries us through to completion. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I am wholly unable to live out these requirements, these conditions, these qualifications in and of myself. But God, I know that I've been given grace. Help me to be a good steward of that grace. The manifold grace that comes from You. God, I just pray that You'd be with this church, that every one of us has been given the ability to live lives that are pleasing to You. Not in our own strength, but in the strength that You provide. God, I pray that you just Grow us, encourage us, help us to remain on the path that leads to more godliness. God, may our concern be the gospel growing in the truth of your word. May our character reflect that we are good stewards of that grace, that you have graciously uh, growing us, that you are graciously growing us. And God, may our conduct reflect our character. And as we do so, may we live out our calling. May we fulfill our charge to walk closer with Jesus day by day. We pray all these things in His name. Amen.